0: Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage.
1: Hey, I'm Kayone Wolf, and this is a Web Extra of my conversation with Marianne Gray. On the latest episode of Audacious, I spoke with her and author Darren Strauss about what it's like living with the aftermath of accidentally killing someone. Let's get right to the extended version of our interview. All right, well, the I'll start probably where everybody starts. Um, June of 1977, what happened that day?
0: At the time, I was uh, getting a master's degree in psychology at um, Miami University, which is in the little teeny town of Oxford, Ohio, a very charming college town. I had spent the morning in Cincinnati with friends. I was actually planning to move there. And it was a gorgeous day. I was driving home and I was thinking that I might get to the swimming pool for the first time, you know, of the season, and I was really looking forward to that. And just following the traffic, it's a kind of country highway that leads from Cincinnati to Oxford. It's pretty heavily trafficked. But I was driving along, and then when I was about 10 or 15 minutes outside of town, uh, driving through a very small residential area, a little boy dashed in front of my car. He darted out into the road. From my left, um, I saw him at the last minute, but there was nothing I could do i I hit him, and um and right away, you know, I knew it was bad. I pulled over, and I've lost a few seconds after that i I do remember pulling over. I don't remember getting out of my car, and running across the road. i I just lost some amount of time, not much, but I kind of came back to consciousness. I was kind of hiding literally behind a bush in someone's yard watching and fortunately the child was being attended to there were lots of people around him giving him first aid so that was a huge relief because that was my first instinct was get to the child see what what happened and so it turned out that i had hit this child in front of his house and i was there when his mother know came out of the house screaming and the neighbors, the women were kind of holding her. And um, you know, this was a long time ago in a little rural area when there weren't very good kind of emergency services. So it took the police about 20 or 25 minutes to arrive. You know, it was endless, just agony. And I was just in shock, but I was also, I also realized what had happened and realized it was very serious. When the police came, they actually beat the ambulance. So they took the boy in the back of a police car and went off to the hospital. And only then did an officer kind of start talking to people. And at that point, I kind of went running up to him literally. (laughs) And I said, I was waving my hand and I was like, I did it. I did it. Because nobody had really noticed me or seen me or paid attention to me or said anything to me. And I was scared. I was scared I was going to be attacked because, you know, I'd watched his mother screaming and just in agony. And I watched the neighbors just that little knot of people that gather and they're crying and they're shocked and they're devastated. And I'd watched all that. So I was really scared. I thought people were gonna kill me. And I, so I went right next to the police officer and he put me in the back of a car, police car and took my statement there was only I think one witness, a young a young girl who really didn't see very much. so even though there were people all around, people didn't really see the collision when it happened. so mostly, I was just sitting in the back of this police car, kind of I'm not religious, but of course, I was praying, and I was trying to tell myself that maybe the child would be okay, that maybe wasn't as bad as i thought, and um, and I was telling myself that I had to stay calm and help the police, that I couldn't break down, that I was the one who caused all this trouble, that I needed to be an adult, even i was twenty two I thought I was an adult, but I needed to be an adult and and be helpful at some point in the afternoon, an officer came back to the car and told me that the child had died, and you know at that point i kind of i I remember this there's it a it's it's kind of common in trauma, but I remember just feeling like I was completely outside my body, like I was looking at myself sitting in the back of that police car, was kind of leaning over my hands over my belly, crying and trying not to cry because I needed to be the grown up, you know, and I just remember watching myself do that. I was fortunate in the midst of all of this horror and trauma and tragedy that one of the neighbors was kind enough to approach the police and get permission to. First, she came to the car and she offered me some water and a cold towel. And then she invited me into her home so I didn't have to sit all alone in that police car. When I tell this story, this is the part where I still will tear up every time, every time. It was so kind. It was such a, in some ways, a huge gesture. In other ways, a very small gesture. Just the opportunity to sit with someone who was comforting and sympathetic and kind made a huge difference going forward. I don't know what would have happened had I not had that bit of humanity extended to me. Um so I stayed with her for 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 I don't know a few hours. And then the police were like, okay, you could go home now. Do you are do you feel okay to drive? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I don't feel okay to drive. So I called um, I called a faculty member professor who didn't live that far away. And he came and picked me up, stayed with him for a few hours, spent the night with my closest friend, called my parents. That was horrible. Um, and after that, I was kind of on my own for quite a while.
1: What kind of changes did you notice in the way that you were Floating through life, what were the most stark ways you changed?
0: Uh, it was pretty dramatic, actually. Um, at the time this crash happened, I was at a peak of happiness in my life. I had been pursuing a master's in psychology, uh, kind of following the program that my family and my background had laid out for me. I realized I wasn't. Happy with it. I was way too young emotionally in any way to be a therapist. I mean, it was a crazy idea. And I got up my courage and told my parents a few weeks before the accident that I was taking leave of absence from school, um, which very quickly turned into, into leaving the program, and that I was going to just live for a while. And I had made arrangements to move into a kind of urban commune in Cincinnati with a bunch of other kids who I really liked. And it just felt like the world was opening up. And I was super happy and excited and felt like I was just coming into my own. And I was coming into my own. All of that I now know from where I sit all these years later was completely age-appropriate. My parents were very unhappy about it.
1: Which is age appropriate, right? (laughs) Yeah. And
0: then this crash happened. So initially, I just had extremely severe kind of traumatic stress symptoms. I had constant, what would be called intrusive images, some flashbacks. I would be in the middle of just trying to do something and an image of, you know, a horrible image. I won't go into them. Would pop into my head and just stop me. So I really couldn't concentrate. I could barely, you know, I would turn on the TV and hours would go by, but I couldn't have told you, you know, what I had watched or whatever. I was very sad. I mean, I, a child, a little eight year old boy, and his name was Brian, you know, he died, and I knew his family was, you know, beyond devastated and I was guilty and I was scared. Um, I was scared of two things first, I was scared of what would happen to me were people going to hate me? was I going to have to go to court? was I going to be you know bullied or ostracized? but I was also scared and and this was the more lasting scare that Anything could happen anytime. You know, all of a sudden the world felt completely unsafe. Like this kid just ran out. And so suddenly everywhere I looked, I saw the potential for danger. And I saw the potential for me to hurt people. So I was extremely scared and vigilant. Um, I ended up giving up my car because I would hallucinate people in the road. When I first got back behind the wheel, I'd be driving and I think I saw somebody stepping into the road and I would slam on my brakes, which is a really good way to cause an accident. Fortunately, I was just lucky, but I realized that was not viable. So I gave up my car for almost two years. I didn't drive. I just took the bus I also had, um, you know, I was alone so much in the days initially after this accident that I, I don't recommend that. A lot of pretty crazy thinking took root. I wanted to be alone. I wanted, I kept the blinds drawn. I just, I just hid out. But I a lot of crazy thoughts took hold. And one of them was that. I had taken a child from his mother and that my punishment was that I would never have my own children. And before that, I mean, it, was, it had been, of course I was gonna have kids, I mean, now it's just what women did, but I never did. I mean, that, that took root so deeply that it turned out to be the case. The other kind of really big impact for me was um, because this crash happened at a peak of happiness and joy and excitement, I no longer trusted. I, you know, I felt I didn't deserve happiness for sure. I was blamed myself and was very self punishing in all kinds of ways, but I also, didn't trust happiness. Like, what if I got really happy? Then I might forget to be vigilant and then I might kill somebody else or do something else terrible. So every time I got happy, I'd be like, okay, Marianne, you know what happens when you get happy. You know what happens. You better be careful. You better be so careful. you're always suspended in this. I had to tamp it down, tamp it down. The adults around me, My professors, my parents, other relatives that I loved, and friends you know, the people who love me, without exception, said to me in their own way, You know, this was a terrible, tragic accident. It is horrible that an eight year old was killed, but it wasn't your fault. You did nothing wrong. You're a young woman with your whole life ahead of you. You need to just you know, take a few weeks, get over it, and then move on with your life. And I wanted to do that. But I couldn't, you know, I had all this other stuff going on. And I didn't feel like it was my right to demand attention or solace or comfort. I was the one who created this problem. I was the one who devastated a family, totally upset my own family. You know, the whole community was mourning for this child. And I had done it. It was me. So I felt like I just had to suck it up and deal with my own thoughts and feelings and not expect other people to comfort me. I was, you know, if I couldn't comfort them, at the very least i could just not ask them to take care of me so i got very good at hiding what was really going on you know i'd be sitting at dinner with my housemates and having a conversation on one level or eating or cooking or whatever and on the other level i'd be having this you know these images these intrusive images or I'd be thinking about the child or I'd be scared. I wouldn't see like a knife on the countertop and get scared that someone would hurt themselves. But all of that was going on as invisible as I could make it. And so there was a big gap, you know, a big disconnect between me and other people that had not been there before, at least to the same degree.
1: When I listen to you tell this story, every time you talk about, you know, it was me, it was my fault if it wasn't for me, I feel like I, this is the first time I'm meeting you, seeing you, but I feel this like compulsion to be like, no, I, I, no, this is not you. You know, I, I naturally feel like, but don't you see if if it had happened to me, you wouldn't think, Kayon, how could you? You wouldn't want me to go through what you went through, but <laughs> but. I guess as it's sort of an eternal question because this applies to anybody. How do we find a path into compassion for ourselves? The compassion that other people have for us. I'm a stranger and I have it for you, but you, you couldn't, (laughs) I don't know how close you are to it now, but how close are you to it now? And how do you, how did you get there? Well, I have spent,
0: you know, probably, hundreds of therapy sessions and thousands of hours writing and thinking and talking and sorting all of this out. But, you know, there's different ways we cause things in the world. You know, we could say, oh, that avalanche caused the death of the skiers, right? But nobody's blaming the avalanche. The avalanche doesn't have any morality, And in some ways, I feel like that is not a bad analogy for my situation and those who have had similar experiences to mine, that I really did do nothing wrong, and this child darted into the street. So I don't hold myself culpable, but I did cause his death. I drove the car into his body. I did that. And so when I say, even to this day, I blame myself, I'm not making a moral judgment. For decades, it was a very severe moral judgment, and we could talk about that. Today, it's more of a statement of fact or a description, really, of what took place. I, mean, I, I did do this. I also believe, um, having said I don't hold myself culpable, you know, I will never know. It is certainly possible that had you been behind the wheel, you would have seen him coming or made some evasive maneuver or, you know, I'll never know that. I wasn't speeding. I wasn't playing the radio. You know, we're fumbling.
1: There were no cell phones in 1977. Yeah, there
0: were no cell phones, but I wasn't like looking in my purse or playing with stuff in the car. I was just following the traffic, you know, and so I know I wasn't doing anything wrong. It doesn't mean that somebody else could would not have done a better job. And maybe somebody else would have realized there were kids in that area. And, Maybe they would have paid more attention. I don't think so, but I do blame myself. I also have come to believe very strongly, and this is fairly recent, that guilt is appropriate under the circumstances. You know, Herb Morris, a philosopher, wrote about non-moral guilt, which is a concept that I love. And you know what? What would we think about somebody who did what I did and? didn't feel guilty. We would think they were the coldest person in the world. And so when people would say to me, oh, you don't need to feel guilty, you shouldn't feel guilty, whatever. You know, it wasn't your fault. It was just an accident. That's a a really good one that
1: we all hate hearing. It was just
0: an accident.
1: Things happen for a reason does not apply. Right. That's that's, that's, that's that's, not, no. That
0: I could write a whole essay about. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I would read that, but yes, no.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I I think guilt is appropriate. And so for me, the question becomes, are you going to let that guilt paralyze you? Are you going to torture yourself or are you going to use it in some way and channel it in some way? Healthy guilt is motivating. It's a signal to ourselves to make amends. Well, when you kill somebody, you can't really fix that situation. There's no cleaning it up. And my guilt was so extreme that it just paralyzed me. It froze me. And I stayed locked in kind of self-punishment and self-recrimination for years and years. So now I say, you know, I finally learned, like, okay, How can I channel the guilt? How can I use this guilt?
1: And I have to imagine that part of that led you to creating your website, Accidental Impacts, which it's, it's wild uh, how few resources there are for people in your situation. Um, When, when people go to Accidental Impacts, what's there for them? You're right.
0: There's a, amazing lack of resources for people who unintentionally harm others, kill them, or seriously injure them compared to almost any other trauma I could think of. There's hardly any research. There's no self-help materials. There's no therapeutic protocols. There's just really nothing out there. There's where the self-help or the support peer support organization and the only one I think we're unique to my knowledge. I did not want people to have to suffer the way I did. One of the costs of my suffering was that I didn't do much good in the world. You know, I was so focused on not doing bad, so focused on not hurting anybody else and not making things worse that I didn't really take many risks to make things better, even though I had the education and the resources and the intelligence and the connections and skills and so forth to, I think, really make a difference. I didn't. And so for me, the dealing with my guilt constructively meant, you know, what can I do to make the world a better place? And for me, that was reaching out to people like Me who are suffering alone, but also can we collectively work together to make the world a better place? So so I can help a few people, but if those people then help other people and reach out in different ways and create differently, all of a sudden we've created a very powerful force for good in the universe, in the world. that's exciting to me. So that's why I started Accidental Impacts. Uh, Most people find us online, although we've gotten a lot of media lately, and there's other ways people find their way, but mostly they find us on Google. They will discover, first of all, a lot of information, basic information about acute and post-traumatic stress, what we call moral injury, the despair of falling short of our own moral standards and expectations for ourselves, they will find a discussion of responsibility, blame, accountability. Some people, as I did, blame themselves inappropriately and there's a cost to that, but that is nothing compared to what I believe to be a fairly small number of people who refuse to accept responsibility or are unable perhaps because of addiction or mental illness or whatever is going on with them. But if you don't kind of look at yourself and say, oh, yes, I was having a road rage incident or, oh, yes, I was way too tired to be driving or I should never have been operating that equipment without having had training, whatever, whatever it is, you know, there are people who need to clean up their act doesn't mean they're not suffering. It doesn't mean they're terrible, evil people. But if they're going to heal and recover and grow, it starts with accountability. So they'll find a pretty robust discussion of that. They'll find a discussion of what we call post-traumatic growth. You know, Nobody is ever going to say, oh, you know, it's really too bad that I killed somebody, but at least I grew as a person. Because, you know, nobody's going to say that the way they might say that about, like, getting cancer or being a crime victim. But as long as it did happen, you may as well choose to grow. I mean, what other choices do you have? You could do what I did and, you know, crawl into a hole for 25 years or whatever. I would rather people deepen their strength, compassion, ability to take the perspective of the other perhaps commitment to making the world safer. I would like to see people think about the meaning of life, cherish life, appreciate life. So there are ways that we grow and that's called post-traumatic growth. And there's a literature on that. They will also find a lot of resources, books, podcasts, articles that they could take a look at. Most of them are interviews and personal stories of one kind or another and they will find lots of comments personal people who have chosen to share their personal story or to respond to someone else's personal story and those comments are extremely touching and powerful and then the way people respond to each other is also very beautiful We also have information about our programs. Accidental Impact started as just a website. It's now a nonprofit corporation, 501c3. And we offer three different peer support opportunities. One is our monthly fellowship meeting. Another is called expressive writing. It's a kind of guided journaling process that meets once a month. And we facilitate... One to one peer support. So we just maintain a list of people who are willing to be contacted by people who want to talk to somebody. We emphasize that none of us, well, we have a licensed therapist on our board, of course, but those of us who are in leadership, visible leadership roles, and offering peer support are not therapists. We are not trained. We're just folks who are further down the road. And we really encourage people who have unintentionally killed or injured someone to get into psychotherapy. Uh, we think that's really essential. And what we offer is a great adjunct to that, but in no way a replacement.
1: When you first started connecting with people who had had similar experiences where they had seriously hurt or killed someone uh, accidentally, after all that time, what was that like for you to, to make those connections and hear maybe some of what you were experiencing coming out of other people's mouths?
0: Oh, it was so powerful. It was so powerful. You know, I've written about or talked about the way this all got started publicly, which was in 2003 when there was a horrible Santa Monica farmer's market car crash and elderly man Killed, I think 10 people, injured dozens when he lost control of his car. And I had worked at the Rand Corporation, which is like three blocks from the farmers market. I'd been to that farmers market. Everybody around here has been to the farmer's market. It's a big one. And I knew people who were there that day. And, you know, so it felt I wasn't there. I wasn't, I was working across town at the time, but it felt very personal to me. And when I heard people screaming that this guy was a murderer, that he did it on purpose, now that touched me in a way. And so I ended up writing a commentary, which I impulsively sent to NPR and then I ran it. And then people, you know, and and I had friends, who never knew like close friends who heard what happened when they were driving home from work. And I came on the radio and all my coworkers, none of my coworkers had known my husband, my husband knew, but we'd never talked about it. So he learned more about what happened from those 600 or 400 words. than he had from the whole duration of our marriage our relationship. Um, But people started, kind of coming out of the woodwork to say, you know, this happened to my sister, my mother, my neighbor, you know, and I'd never talked to anybody in all those years. I'd never talked to anybody who had unintentionally killed someone or even hurt someone. So it was so powerful to begin those conversations say you felt like that I felt like that you know how did you forgive yourself did you forgive you know
1: yeah what is forgiveness in this case yeah
0: exactly exactly they were great conversations and they were emotional but they were ultimately extremely supportive and reassuring and hopeful
1: there was a very thoughtful New Yorker article written about this, including your experience. I love that article. We'll link to it on the website. And they brought up a passage in the book of numbers in the fourth book of the Torah, where God instructs Moses to tell the Israelites that they are to designate six cities of refuge so that anyone who kills someone inadvertently may flee there. Will you talk about that and what that meant for you to read? Sure. So
0: I'm Jewish, but I grew up without any religious education or didn't go to temple. We, it just wasn't part of my family life. And I knew odds and ends about Judaism. But one of the ways I kind of tortured myself after this accident was um, I remember people saying to me things like, Christians care about what's in your heart and your soul and your mind, but Jews are focused on what you do. So I was like, oh, so that's not very hopeful. And there's a passage in the Yom Kippur David Atonement Services that basically says you have to ask for forgiveness from the person you hurt. Which, of course, I, I felt entirely unable to do at the time. And so I just kind of figured I was screwed and that religion could only make me feel worse, that it had nothing to offer. And then on a day when I didn't really feel like working, so I was just randomly Googling things. I, I found, I think I Googled accidental killing or something like that. And all of a sudden there it was. It's in several different places in the Torah. And it turns out, yeah, there was this elaborate set of rules about what to do if you unintentionally kill someone. And the way it worked was um, like if you're out in the forest chopping wood, say, and your axe head flies off the handle and it embeds itself in, you know, the. Person chopping wood a few trees down and kills them so that you've unintentionally killed them. So, what you have to do is run as fast as you can, flee to one of these six cities of refuge. Once you get there, the relatives of the person that you've killed are not allowed in. If they get to you before that, they can take their revenge and kill you in retaliation, but once you get to the city of refuge, you're safe. The roads to the cities of refuge, there were all these rules. They had to be wider than a usual road. They had to have really good signage. If there were bridges, the bridges had to be well-maintained. It was the whole society's shared responsibility to get that accidental killer to safety. Once they got there, the city elders let them in to the city, and they would stay there until there was a trial, basically. If they were found to have committed murder, they were executed. That's what happened back then. But if they were found to have, in fact, unintentionally killed someone, they had to remain inside the city of refuge until the high priest, I think in Jerusalem, died. And at that point, whether it was three days or 30 years, then they could go home. Inside the city of refuge, they were given jobs. They were given homes. The cities allowed them to hold office and receive honors. But people, everybody had to know, you know, you couldn't hide who you were. You had to be open. People knew you were an accidental killer. And you couldn't leave. If you left the city, again, the relatives, what the Torah called the blood avengers, could come after you and kill you with impunity. So to make sure you didn't have to leave, there was always a water supply in the cities and ample food and just everything you needed there were all kinds of other rules that I won't go into and many different interpretations about you know what it meant to be restricted to the city and why the high priest's death was a release and you know there's hundreds of pages of commentary on this in the Talmud and the scholars over the generations. But I love the idea that a society had a whole set of procedures and rules that on the one hand held the accidental killers fully accountable for what happened. Um, There were quite serious consequences. But on the other hand, it was extremely compassionate, right? You know, they could have been exiled like Oedipus, you know, who killed his father, slept with his mother, gouged out his own eyes and exiled himself to the desert. You know, they could have done that and said, well, you don't deserve to be in society anymore. But they didn't. They said, you're you're part of our community. And we realize that you did something very serious and that has consequences for you. So I think it's a beautiful
1: concept. Yeah, that must have been, I mean, I have to imagine even though you know these things happen, that you also felt like you were the only one this has ever happened to. And then, you know, when you read that, when you you research that, you know, it's written in 1400 BC. (laughs) So this is something that people have been thinking about for a long time. And it was obviously a big enough deal to make it into something like that. Makes you feel less alone. Very much so. I know that if people go to your website, Accidental Impacts, um, they can see a whole bunch of resources. But I'd like to make sure that people listening have some takeaways. First, for if this happens to them, if this is something they go through, um, just a few key things that, you know, you wish you knew to keep in mind about the reality of things. And then um, some advice for people who love someone who's going through what you're going through. For someone who
0: unintentionally injures or kills someone, I think it's useful to think in terms of a journey. (laughs) You may be feeling anguish, despair, hopelessness. You may feel like, you could never be happy again, that you'll never find your way back to the self-acceptance or peace with yourself or with your world that you knew. But you can, and I, in my experience, you will. It is a journey. It's a hard journey. It's a painful journey. I believe it's a journey that is facilitated by letting other people help you. I strongly recommend psychotherapy. Uh, It doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you're self-indulgent. It doesn't mean you're turning yourself into a victim. It doesn't mean you're crazy. It means you're strong. It means you're interested in learning better coping skills, that you're interested in clarifying your values, And the meaning that you want to assign to the accident and that you want to think carefully with input from someone who cares about you, but could think more objectively, perhaps, about how you can most effectively respond. And until those symptoms are brought under some kind of control, it's very difficult to think clearly and function effectively in the world. So those are all good reasons to go to therapy. So I want to really give a hopeful message. And for me, the end goal of all of this is to honor our victims. I believe we do that by making choices that make the world a better place. So some people invest in community service, volunteer work advocacy, fundraising, good deeds of one kind or another. Other people choose creative expression, art, music, writing. Other people, Darren Strauss is a great example of that, by the way. I think his book is beautiful. Other people deepen their spiritual connections and beliefs or they develop their own skills and talents through education or whatever, And many people simply say, I'm going to make the world a better place by being the best person I can be, and I'm going to live with compassion and integrity, and I'm going to make kindness my choice, even when it's difficult. And I'm going to do that in honor of the person who died and everybody who suffered as a result. because." Life is precious and it's fragile. So let's show our appreciation by taking care of each other. So that's my message. That last part is down the road. The first challenge is coping, dealing with trauma, dealing with moral injury, dealing with whatever legal repercussions there may be. The growth and honoring and all that comes later. So that's why I talk about it as a journey. Really can't be rushed. We do it on our own time. For friends and family, um, the support and the love that friends and family offer is invaluable. I think people who unintentionally harm others are afraid that they're going to be hated and ostracized, and sometimes they are. You know, I know people who've been physically attacked trolled on social media horribly. So to know that even if they feel disconnected, they are still invited to be part of the family, part of the friendship circle, part of the community is so important and will be so valuable, even if it's hard to see at a particular moment in time. We've talked about some things not to say it's so hard to see people that we love suffer. So we want to say, "Oh, it's just an accident. Your intentions are good. You're a good person. You didn't mean it. It's not your fault." Or maybe it is their fault, but then you say, "It was just an accident. You know, you did the best you could. These things happen, you know. Mostly there's no harm in that, but it's not helpful. And sometimes it's harmful because sometimes The person listening gets the message, oh, I I guess I better not talk about this, you know, or they feel more alone. Nobody really understands. So I recommend listening with compassion and love, certainly inviting the person to consider thoughts that might be irrational or not very constructive. Listening is so important. There's other kinds of support that people need in the weeks immediately following a serious accident. Some people are really great at the listening, hugging, compassion. I'll just sit quietly with you if you don't feel like talking. I'll hold you when you cry. Not everybody's great at that. But there's all kinds of logistics. You the kids need To be picked up from school, the groceries need to get to the refrigerator, the bills need to be paid. And there's usually a whole bunch of really tedious and awful regulatory and legal stuff, insurance records, legal records, accident reports. If someone is good at that stuff and can say, you know what, let me deal with the insurance company (laughs) or let me find you a lawyer let me find you a therapist. Let me drive the kids. Let me make dinner. Let me organize neighbors, whatever. Sometimes people want other people to know what happened, but they don't want to have to have the conversation. It's another way you could help. And then providing information. You know, if the person isn't ready to surf over to accidental impacts, well, a friend or family member could do that and pull out or learn what they think is going to be helpful and share that. So no, the fact that you're having these flashbacks does not mean you're crazy. If This is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. That can be reassuring, little things like that. So there's so many ways to help. Most important way is to reassure the person that you're not abandoning them.
1: When I hear you talk about the importance of making the world a better place. I keep thinking about the neighbor who took you from the back of that cop car. She showed me that. I mean,
0: I think she taught me that. Just the simplest act. But it was so kind. And it made such a difference. And, you know, if more of us, everybody, could follow that example and say, well, we, you know, we don't always know exactly what happened. We have our own feelings and our own upset. I mean, they knew this child, but there's somebody who's in despair. Why not choose kindness?
1: What are some things that people maybe misunderstand about the work you're doing?
0: I'm not trying to create a new class of victim here. I realize, you know, if if we're not exactly perpetrators, we're certainly not victims. And the real victim is the person who died and all of those who mourn for that person. So I want to be really clear about that. I believe in accountability, and I think that's essential to society and essential to our own well being. But I also think we could be compassionately accountable. We can hold people accountable with compassion. We can hold ourselves accountable with compassion. But I I always worry that people are going to kind of get their backs up and say, oh, she's just trying to say that she's the victim. It's like, no, no, I get that.
1: Listening to you tell the story about what happened, I can sense your discomfort. I, I see that it's still difficult to talk about, which makes sense, of course. What does it do to you to tell the story now?
0: I've mixed feelings about it. (laughs) In some ways, you know, I'm not thrilled to be the poster child
1: for accidental killing. (laughs) It's not,
0: that's not really what I wanted in my life.
1: And there's more to you than this. You are not one thing. There's a lot more
0: to me than that. And so in that regard, I don't, Love it. In another way, I know that every time I tell my story, my website is going to get more hits and I'm going to get more emails and people are going to write more comments to the website. And so it's my mission. I've chosen this, I've bought into it. So I appreciate the opportunity to tell my story.
1: Well, Marianne Gray. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. You've taken on a challenging topic, but I think it's an important one. Me too. You can visit Marianne's website at accidentalimpacts.org. And you can get in touch with me. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And our landing page is at ctpublic.org slash audacious. Thanks to my team at Connecticut Public Radio, Katie Tilarski and Jessica severin Martinez. And thanks very much to you for listening to this Web Extra. Take care.